Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey everyone, Clarissa Kennedy here. On today's episode of the Food Junkies podcast, we're bringing you the incredible Callie Means. We asked him to be here so he could discuss his viral tweet where he stated that he saw inside the room of Coca-Cola's tactics, which were to ensure that sugar-sweetened beverage taxes failed and that soda was permitted in government-funded nutrition programs. Callie is a whistleblower who's exposing the dirty tactics that Coca-Cola used to rig the system and keep vulnerable populations unhealthy. Callie Means is also the founder of TrueMed, a company that enables Americans to buy exercise equipment and healthy food with FSA, HSA dollars. He's also the co-author with his sister, Dr. Casey Means, of an upcoming book on food as medicine. Earlier in his career, he was a consultant for the food and pharma companies. Now he's exposing the practices they use to weaponize our institutions of trust. He's a graduate of Stanford and Harvard Business School. We hope this episode will reaffirm that ultra-processed food and big food and big pharma can't be trusted and that, you know, you really will get to see how, even though we know these things, most people can't stop. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Okay. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your co-host today, along with Clarissa Kennedy. Today, we talk with food industry whistleblower, Callie Means. As a graduate of Stanford and Harvard Business School, Callie worked for many years as consultant for food and pharma companies. Some of his ventures included politically maneuvering soda like Coca-Cola and candies to be included as food and food stamps and attempting to stop soda sugar taxes from being implemented. Kelly worked for many years within the food industry until he felt sick at heart. In a 1980-degree turn, he now unabashedly states that Coca-Cola's policies are evil because he quotes, I saw inside the room. Kelly Means will tell us about his journey, hopefully, inside this room how he got out and what he saw while he was an insider. And then finally, he gives some suggestions about how to change the system from within. For example, he is now co-founder of TrueMed, a company that encourages Americans to buy exercise and health food instead of meds and candy with their tax-advantaged healthcare accounts. <laughs> Great. Okay, welcome, Kelly. So glad to be here. Yeah, we're so thrilled that you're here. So we always like to start with the personal. So if you don't mind, please tell us your journey how you got into consulting with the food and pharma industry, what your role was, and then your aha moment that made you turn from insider to basically whistleblower. Oh, sure. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Georgetown, which is which is right in Washington, D.C., so I'm one of the few people that was actually born and raised uh, in the swamp, as they call it. And um, But I, I really had high hopes as a kid. You know, I was very inspired by working in politics. And that was my dream. As you said, I went out to Stanford, studied economics, political science with the dream of of contributing to politics and, and worked on some campaigns. What I learned and didn't quite realize when I was a kid is that when the campaigns are over, inevitably, both on the right and the left, folks go into consulting. And the two biggest spenders in Washington, D.C. are pharma and food. So inevitably, most people, and they go in and, and almost everyone I know gets into this game of uh, public policy and politics for the right reasons. But inevitably, you find yourself sitting across the table from food and and pharma companies. At the time, honestly, I was fine with that. You know, I was kind of a conservative, uh, I would say traditional thinker and felt proud of pharma innovation and agriculture innovation and um, and was happy to uh, help these people initially. But but as time went on, um, it was pretty dispiriting. And um, and just to kind of bring it to today, um, it got out of politics, got more and more into entrepreneurship. 
and have really been convinced um, in the past several years, you know, looking backwards on my experience, this, I call it the devil's bargain. The, the fact that we're getting so sick from food and then we would expect the healthcare industry to talk about that, to raise the alarm, but it doesn't because every institution in healthcare, I believe profits, especially in the United States from treating people who are sick. And we can dive into that, but I actually really looking back, did see a lot of, of this devil's bargain of this coordination between health and, and food and, um, you know, having personal family, you know, issues. Let's so my mom dying from a metabolic condition really tied to her prediabetes, which 50% of American adults have. And then you know, my sister who is the pride of the family, a physician, um, you know, Stanford med school surgeon on, on the right track and abruptly kind of leaving uh, based on her insight that uh, almost everything she was doing surgery on was tied to inflammation, which is tied to food, um, which yeah. is not tied in medical school. So, so a couple, couple personal awakenings, having a new son going into the, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely, I think, uh, terrifying what kids, what's happening to kids right now in their metabolic health. So decided to speak out and, 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 and TrueMed is, is working to incentivize healthy food and, and health and, and exercise where 95% of the U S medical system right now uh, makes money on interventions once people are already sick. You know, as you're talking about this, it reminds me of when I was uh, myself in medical school. And then even as an academic before that, being aware that, like you said, you go in with the, the right idea of helping people and wanting to learn things. And then really realizing that you're sitting across the table from big pharma or wasn't so much big food in my case, but big pharma. And, you know, that's who you have to work with and work with. And one of the things as I was um, listening to your talks, other talks, was this concept of moral injury. You know, you do something and like you you used mentioned the word you felt demoralized in your work. And uh, I would imagine that your sister is feeling some of that too, which, you know, when we talk about uh, post-traumatic stress, there's a term that's called moral injury. Like how long can we work working in the devil's bargain before we go crazy? Yeah, I think I think it's really... I've been talking and, and thinking a lot about motivations. And I think that's a lot of what people want to get to is like, what, what's motive? If it's, you know, clearly there's something really bad happening. What, what's yeah. it like on the ground? I think it's really interesting with, with medicine, you know, the U S I think it's kind of tragic because everyone that goes into med, you know, it, it, for the dedication and time it takes to be a doctor, there are easier ways to make money. I mean, I don't think actually people are going into, you know, uh, harm patients and, and make money, right? The U.S. actually really is a, is a magnet, particularly for the best and brightest. You know, people come here and, yeah. and learn and want to be a doctor. And then the system is kind of dispiriting. It takes these really dedicated, smart people in. It saddles them with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. And then I think slowly like enters in them into the system where, and again, this isn't anything on any personal motivations, but every lever of the healthcare system in the United States makes more money when people are sicker for longer periods of time and loses money when people are healthy. Uh -huh. You know, you take a, a sick child. I mean, right now in the United States, our, our, our program, our, our healthcare program for, for lower income folks, Medi Medicaid, we spend more on Medicaid uh, than the Department of Defense, much more. And it's growing at a much faster rate. And that money is really just going to the health industry. It's going from the government to pharma and, and hospitals. So it's a, it's a huge part of their budget, obviously, again, more than the military department going just, just to private industry. And a sick, lower income kid is a boondoggle for them. That, that's what's driving their profits because that, you know, 25% of kids now in the United States have prediabetes or diabetes. That's a goldmine for the medical system from an economic standpoint. Because obviously, if, if a child, yeah. you know, has, has prediabetes or diabetes and, you know, goes in the system. It's told, oh, that's a lifetime issue. And, you know, we'll have to manage that. You manage it. You actually have the U S guidelines saying that uh, if you're taking your diabetes medication, you can eat whatever you want. So they're continuing to harm their metabolic health. You know, 99% of people with diabetes in the United States yeah. have at least one other comorbidity. That's a very profitable patient. They're going to have a lot of other Okay. Other so uh, issues. You could make the argument there that the doctor may just not be politically aware or astute. They may not be aware of how complicit they are in this. But let's talk about the people that we know are complicit, which are the yeah. food companies. And that's the piece that, that we really want to dig uh, your your experience. So you were actually in the food company. And the first one, the question I want to ask you is, do you think really honestly, tell us, does Coca-Cola, do they know how addictive their food is? Their what you call sugar water and industrial waste. Do they really know how bad that is? Or do they actually believe their own line that it's possibly uh, that you can do this in moderation. Yeah, let me answer that by connected to doctors. I use okay, sure. Talk yeah. about doctors actually, and 
I think most doctors do feel like they're on the front lines fighting, but the suicide rate and burnout rate and depression yeah. among doctors is among the highest in professionals. Yeah, yeah, I think that actually indicates that there's a knowledge in some degree and that people feel stuck. Yeah. And I think that to some degree is happening a bit more in the food industry. But when I was there 10 years ago, hmm. I think there was maybe this like slight knowledge but people do. I mean, you know, food and, and healthcare is the largest industry in the United States. Agriculture, food is is basically the second. I mean, it, it's systemic. And I do, do think that a lot of folks um, make justifications to themselves. You know, the, what was talked about a lot and sitting around these the rooms and, and you know, as I talked about, um, it was very dispiriting. Uh, I, I saw Coke pay off a, you know, this civil rights group that, that has done a tremendous things throughout American history. The NAACP very transactionally saying, you know, here's millions of dollars in the NAACP. They paid them to keep soda on food stamps. Uh, which is a program for low-income Americans, yes. which is just absolutely decimating their populations. Now, in that room, it wasn't like a cartoon, evil people smoking cigars. It, it was, you know, couched in terms of like Coke is cheap calories. Um, it's a it's a treat, you know, which they're drinking. It, people are drinking it every day. You know, it's it's termed in these these um, you know good words, and I, and I think I believed it to some degree at the time, and I do think people people yeah. believe it. You know, I from going to Harvard Business School, a lot of my friends, you know, people that wrote their essays about wanting to change the food system, change the healthcare system, they go into pharma and they go into Pepsi and they go into it's like it's like basically have this normalization. What I would just say is is mm-hmm. it's just because something's normalized doesn't mean it's it's not very wrong. I mean, c- cigarette companies, you know, Philip Morris in 1980 was one of the five largest companies in the world, and um, you know, everyone from elite institutions was going in there, and it was you know, very normal. So, so I do think things change, but it, but it's just, it's normalized because I think it's such an important part of the economy. And that normalization, thank you for using that word, because that's, you know, we all often get told, I mean, Chrissy, I know you agree with me here, that, you know, we're, we're going over the top, that, you know, we should just accept that it's normal to have treats on Christmas and Halloween and Thanksgiving and blah, 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 blah. But who's making that normal but the food industry? I mean, am I not right about that? But that's, there's an intentional normalization policy. Like, I'd like to talk about some of the tactics that big food uses, presuming that's one of them. It's that simple. It's that simple. It's, it's again, I, I, I don't think an individual in the wheels of, of how this works really even understands how cataclysmic this is. I, I think that awareness is probably growing a little bit. But the, the invisible hand wants these food companies, right, to be cheaper and more addictive. And that leads to not really a radical uh, strategy for public policy, for marketing, for lobbying to make these foods as normalized as possible. So that was the high level strategy. So how do we rig institutions of trust to normalize this food? You know, not, not paying attention to the fact that we're eating hundred times more sugar than we did hundred years ago, or the fact that really the sugar itself is totally weaponized. You know, a lot of it's, you talked about fructose, which you know, really truly weaponizes the, uh, the brain to, to want to eat more. Um, a great word. You know, weaponized. It, I love it. Yeah. It's weaponized. Uh, you know, the fruit, high fructose corn syrup, you know, processed, uh, corn syrup, um, and fructose, you know, is, is just a special, but it truly makes, uh, you know, shuts off the satiety signals and, and makes people want to eat more kids. And this is what's in kids food. And we subsidize it in the United States heavily. I mean, it's actually just crazy. So how do we, how do we rig institutions of trust? Very interesting. Coke actually aggressively, uh, and I watched this happen, they target uh, hospitals and schools. There's an all-out campaign, a lot of money, a lot of attention, a lot of public policy work to have Coke vending machines in pediatric wards and in schools. Today, still, the vast majority of high schools in the United States have a vending machine. Sometimes they have not soda, but they have juice and other sugar beverages. And then in pediatric wards, in more than 50% of them still to this day, they have full strength Coke and Pepsi in those wards and in hospital cafeterias. So that's one. Number two, it's actually the medical groups. In 2011, when we were, you know, working on the food stamp issue, right? When you think about the growth of childhood diabetes and diabetes in general, I mean, this was really not that big of a thing in, you know, 1950. This has grown exponentially among adults and children. A, you know, diabetes physician, you know, wouldn't see a patient in their career who is a child or a teenager who had full-fledged diabetes. Now, you know, it's like, as I said, 25% of teens have pre-diabetes or diabetes in the United States. You know, this is an absolute crisis. And, it, and it's if you were to pick one issue, I, I think 
it's uh, weaponized sugar in the form of liquid. You, you know, we didn't really used to ever have that. We didn't have this uh, liquid sugar uh, drinks until about you know 50, 60 years ago, right? We juice maybe occasionally, but like this is this is what folks are drinking right now, and it's weaponized. The American Diabetes Association obviously should be at the top of their lungs saying we need to have a national policy to reduce uh, sugar consumption, especially in the form of liquids, particularly with lower income people. Instead, when uh, we were trying to get uh, and folks were trying to get food stamp spending off of soda, the American Diabetes Association accepted money from Coke. They accepted millions of dollars. The head group in the United States that credentials nutritionists accepted money and actually said it's a good nutritional move to drink smaller can- small cans of Coke. The American Academy of Pediatrics accepted money from Coke. So actually a direct payments, millions of dollars from Coke and other food companies to medical groups. Not only did that actually, and sometimes by, uh, by explicit endorsement, literally the American Diabetes Association having a Coke logo on the website, of course it buys silence, right? Of course, you know, it basically uh, enables those groups not to tie food to chronic conditions. But then of course, and again, I think this is really important to point out where the devil's bargain comes in. These groups, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the, Amer- the American Diabetes Association, you, you tell me, doctor, but this is my understanding. These are very influential groups, not just for the United States, but around the world of setting the standard of care and agenda. The main funding for these groups is pharmaceutical dollars that are profiting from the metabolic health crisis. Again, going back to the kid I talked about, that kid who, who's a lifetime patient, if that child learns metabolically healthy habits, you know, learns how to exercise, learns how to cook meals, learns how to you know, eat, eat appropriately, cut ultra-processed food from their diets, that's a disaster economically for diabetes doctors, for obesity doctors, for um, really, really every type of doctor that at this point is dealing with the impacts of metabolic dysfunction. So that's kind of how it works. A, a couple a couple examples. It's medical groups. It's directly paying hospitals. It's directly paying schools. I've talked about, you know, groups of trust like the NAACP and, and, and you know, frankly, trying to racialize the debate, which I think is very cynical. And then the last I'll just mention real quickly is media organizations. Pharma is the number one spender on news in the United States, on news ads. And I've been talking out about this. I've been on, you know, many independent platforms, the leading ones, but it's it's a blanket coverage of, of no no critical coverage on the mainstream media in the United States because th- their funding number one comes from pharma, and then a top spender is, is food. Food companies are the number one advertiser for children's programming in the United States, which is not allowed, I believe, in Canada and other other. There's more regulation on this, but uh, Viacom, which owns Nickelodeon and, uh, and Disney and others, actually heavily lobby the Federal Trade Commission in the United States, which regulates advertisements that food companies are allowed to advertise on their platforms. And if you watch children's networks, it's just an absolute one after another sugary, uh, really, really drug peddling. Yeah. Okay. So, so for people who are listening, that essentially normalizes. It sets the standard of practice for physicians. It sets the standard of practice or whatever you call it for education at what we teach our dietitians and our doctors. So it essentially, it's almost a dictatorship of education or knowledge about sugar and whatnot. And that would explain why it is that those of us who are fighting against sugar are virtually dismissed or not heard and sometimes ostracized. 100%. I mean, people need, and I used to do this too, we kind of attacked a, a Canadian system on, um, you know, socialized healthcare, whatever. We have worse than a socialized system. We have a completely, utterly corrupt, you know, kind of oligop- oligopy of, um, of, uh, of corruption. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just an orgy of corruption. Yeah. Like, it's actually worse than anything imaginable. We, we, we have leading groups that should be fighting for kids literally saying we shouldn't be stigmatizing food and stigmatizing sugar as 25% of kids have prediabetes, 15% of kids have fatty liver disease, 45% of teens are obese or overweight. We we have complete obfuscation on why that's happening uh, because our system is built to grow, which is through treating sick kids. You know, today, the playbook's just being executed perfectly by, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics was nowhere to be found. They were accepting money from Coke when I was working and, and they were trying to keep Coke on food stamps. But now there's, you know, now that we're trying to classify obesity as a disease that we have no control over, there's a huge push to medicalize that, to manage that like every other chronic condition. What I think is the biggest blind spot in America right now is has the medicalization siloing of chronic conditions into individual treatable categories, has that not been the greatest disaster, the greatest 
cataclysm in American medical history. Every condition we siloed and tried to treat has gone up. Heart disease has gone up. Diabetes has gone up. We spent over a trillion dollars on diabetes management. It just keeps going up. So we're going to make, you know, every, just take any, any condition, cholesterol, uh, high blood pressure, uh, fatty liver disease, depression, which we've totally medicalized. Everything's going up as we treat it. So now, now we think by, oh, the, the magic pill is making uh, an injection for obesity and, and yes. isolating that variable. Now there's a lot of work uh, by food and pharma companies to make that a reality. Yeah, I mean, what, what's really interesting is, is you're saying that the more we silo or, or compartmentalize our various conditions, we have the people who are speaking against it, like uh, Christopher, I can't remember his name, the one that writes Palmer. about the, uh, the, yeah, the, the unifying theory of metabolic yeah. disease. Right. I mean, there is actually a simple answer. It doesn't need to be separated out like this, but that's that's exactly what's happening. It's, it's basically the unified versus this split. Yeah, yeah I, I think we have an existential threat because in the U.S. particularly because I, I literally like people. It sounds so hyperbolic. People kind of gloss their eyes at the numbers, but it is twenty percent of spending in the United States right now. It's growing at an increasing rate. Healthcare in the United States is the largest and fastest growing industry in the country, which is, which is actually astounding, right? The largest and the fastest growing, producing worse outcomes as we spend more money. Yeah. So in fifteen years, it's going to be forty percent of GDP, and we're going to have a completely non-competitive fat, infertile, like population. And the other thing that you said was that uh, you, you kind of just threw these out, but I wanted to pick up on them. Other sort of consequences, you said we're racializing. Can you expand on that thought? And also the whole body positivity movement, which we actually talked about in, in the Food Junkies podcast, as that that's another potential ossification, if that's the right word. Uh, if you want to... Yeah. Oh, Yo, absolutely. Yeah. We, we, I think we need to really be clear on this and just just call it out for what it is um let's do that <laughs> we are in, <laughs> we're in this bizarre world right now where basically things that we're saying are good for populations are the exact opposite and what's happening to lower income potentially community particularly communities of colors in the united states is they're being devastated but they're being devastated by one thing above any other and that's nutrition um, a lower income american dies more than 10 years younger than a upper income american I call it the bizarre world strategy because it's saying things that are the exact opposite what is true. So in the United States right now, a lower income American at the 1% percentile dies more than 10 years younger than an American at the top percentile. Hmm. And that is almost, you know, chiefly because of nutrition. That is because of the, you know, one ton of genetic information that's going into people's bodies each year. And there's a huge disparity on that. You know, particularly when we talk about the NAACP or the Hispanic Federation, the leading Hispanic group is fighting for that community. Um, a huge, huge issue of inequality is around food and it's leading to devastation. I mean, you look at the the disparities and, and what's happening to lower income uh, populations and communities of colors around diabetes, fatty liver disease, obesity. This is really like, you know, when you are struggling with those from an early age, that is really profoundly impacting your life. Um, and it's a huge problem. And then on, on just a macro budget perspective, that is literally, as I said, we are spending more on, on these conditions for, for Medicaid than the defense budget. It, it is it, when you calculate all the health expenditures the government's paying, it's like six times more than defense. This is literally what's what's bankrupting our country. And weirdly, we're funding and subsidizing the poisonous food that's creating these downstream. It's actually like public policy insanity. And what, you know, particularly when you go into the NAACP, you know, what they should be strongly fighting for is a reformed food system. But a lot of these groups, regrettably, are pay to play. And, you know, when I was working 10 years ago, it's like, just create the list. We created a list of, of them, the Hispanic Federation. In each city, we had uh, African-American pastors. The major pastors often would take money. And, you know, everyone's kind of doing what's right for them. You know, they own the LACP. You know, they can maybe go to bed tonight saying, hey, it's, you know, it's keeping people like Coke. But it's like nobody's really looking out for kids. There's not there's not a lobbying organization that's spending billions of dollars to help diabetic kids. So yeah, I, I, I think there's that, and and then that same type of um that same type of playbook, which is just like what makes the debate toxic. Okay, calling someone racist. Okay, well the NAACP will play ball. Okay, now that's happening now with body influence, body influence, uh, and body positivity, as you said. Okay, can you so, elaborate a bit more for yeah, yeah. we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. It's the exact same playbook. So 10 years ago, we went to the NAACP. Here's millions of dollars. Call opponents racist. Now, you actually just had a report that Nestle and other processed food companies have funneled millions of dollars. They have a program where they are funneling 
a lot of money to body positive TikTok influencers. So what's happening is, I'll give a specific case, Nestle paid a leading body uh, positive influencer on TikTok, and they did videos saying that it is racist to stigmatize any food, that the only reason you should say any bad thing about a donut is if that donut has mold on it, and that you can be healthy in any size, and it's it's systemic racism to criticize any food. But, uh, like, the, explain why. I'm so baffled. Why would that be considered racist? What they argue is that... Yeah, what's their argument? I mean, it's hard to even track what the arguments are, but what they sometimes argue is that African-American populations have higher rates of obesity, so stigmatizing obesity and food is actually racist to them, when in fact uh, it's Orwellian because... We we agree that it's a huge problem in inequality that there's higher rates of obesity and chronic disease among lower income populations. Yeah. So it's like that's a problem, but their solution to that is just being okay with it and not acting like obesity isn't a blaring example that that person's life is going to be shorter. I get that, but I don't get how donuts, calling a donut a problem is racist. Is it because lower income people are eating donuts? And I think it's very patronizing if you really chase the logic. It's, I think they're saying the communities they're speaking for like donuts and, you know, oh, are happen okay. to be right. fat okay. and, uh, and obese and, and that you're kind of stigmatizing them. If, if you, if you say that, right. I mean, it's, I, it's truly kind of hard to even track the logic. But it's trying um, to stop the conversation, right? Just yeah. by saying it's racist, it's racist, then everyone just stops and steps it's back because that's like the worst thing you can be called. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. Or that you're fat phobic. Okay. Exactly. And and, and then it's healthy in any size, fat. So it's time to, you know, yeah. fat phobic, healthy in any size to throwing in some racial innuendo on there. Interesting. And you, this, again, this is actually like hard to believe. It's hard for me to wrap my head around what the arguments are. And it's, it, this will sound fake that this actually happened, but the unprompted, we don't even know why, but the largest school district in the United States, the LA Unified School District shared that video I just mentioned on their Instagram page. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of tying up. I mean, the schools in the United States are one of the largest servers of food. They're highly tied with food companies. So they actually posted that when they're dealing with a lower income population who's being devastated by metabolic dysfunction. So okay. you you have money just as they went to the civil rights groups and still are, by the way, the maker of Ozempic, the obesity drug is funneling yeah. a lot of money to the NAACP as well. <laughs> and wow. the NAACP is literally putting out talking points saying it's uh, uh, you can address systemic racism by supporting Medicaid, Medicare funding for Ozempic for obesity. And that's a way to actually be part of an anti-racist agenda. So they're funneling money to the the ACP and the food companies are totally weaponizing this fat phobic thing. Just last thing, there's also been a lot of money from processed food companies to TikTok influencers. And there's a big campaign in the US US right now to... um, to scare doctors from weighing patients or talking about weight. Yes, I I know that on on my side, I see that. I I absolutely see what you're talking about. This isn't organic. This is, this is, it's, and it's actually not that complicated, but it's like, you know, these PR executives sit around the conference room. Okay. There's all these body, you know, body positive people. They're looking for money, right? I think it would be take days to try to understand all the psychology and all the dynamics here, but that's what exists. They're looking for money. So funding them, Right. And getting them to carry the message and getting them to carry this systematic effort. So now this is this is a big issue. Like like doctors aren't weighing patients anymore. No. And I just want to be like, we just got to be very clear here. And I, getting back to your point about yeah, that. And can I yeah. can I tell you why I'm told not to weigh patients? And then I want you to carry on. I'm told oh, don't weigh patients because they keep losing the weight and gaining it back, and we fat shame them so they won't come back and they won't tell us. So let's not even go there because we don't want to shame them. Please carry which on. Which is no, which is which is disparity, and, and and this gets to like oh, you know, the dietary inventions fail. Well, they're failing because there's trillions of dollars of, of incentives against the patients. Exactly. You know, it doesn't exactly. it doesn't change. I don't blame the patients. I don't blame. You know, I've actually been a big personal responsibility guy. I really do think when you have 80% of the American adults overweight or obese, I don't think actually the American people have become systematically lazier in the past 50 years. I don't think they're systematically trying to kill themselves and miss they're they're playing with their grandkids. I think there's really something wrong here. And I think it's very convenient for folks who are profiting off treating these conditions to say, oh, you know, patients are lazy. These things always fail. It's really, and, and, but anyway, you were saying, you were saying you're, we're sitting around the table trying to figure out now, please carry on with your story. Oh no. Um, yeah, I think, I think it ties to 
what you said earlier, which I think I believe is the most important trend in the world in medicine over the next 10 years is that we have been lied to about this siloed view of health. And it's been extremely profitable for food companies and for healthcare companies. A doctor right now, graduating med school, chooses between 42 specialties. We've siloed the human body into 42 different parts. Mm -hmm. My sister was a head and neck surgeon, right? Focused on three millimeters of the, of the face and then do a fellowship and it's one millimeter. And, wow. and, the, and the president of Stanford med school had another, had an extra fellowship and focused on like one half millimeter, like minors. I think it's called minors disease or something. You know, he had that, that's how you rise up. Be, you, know, you literally focus smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And the generalists, and, the family doctors are are getting, they're leaving in droves because they're not getting paid and they're not getting right. acknowledged. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Uh, so it's all about segmentation. And that's what's happening with obesity. And I, I think this is one of the biggest fights and most important fights that we have right now, because obesity is a symptom, I believe, of metabolic dysfunction. Okay. It's not the disease in and of itself to treat. I think we need to, we, we've been totally gaslighted, you know, to see each symptom is like, oh, take a pill, take a pill. It's like, to me, in some ways, obesity is one of the good symptoms. You know, you you, you could be exerting and, and demonstrating metabolic dysfunction invisibly, like fatty liver disease or cancer or some other way where, you know, you don't even know. Obesity actually is a visible sign. Literally, obesity is the visual result of, of metabolic dysfunction. It's your cells malfunctioning yeah. um, and too much energy being stored as fat because your cells aren't, aren't functioning correctly. Like, you know, we should just be clear-headed in that. We shouldn't be shaming anyone. This is a, obviously a systematic failure in, in our country in the way we've, we've done our food system. Again, it's not even that everything's been terrible. I mean, we've, we've had a lot of success in the last hundred years. We've had a lot of innovation. We've had, you know, some food innovation really attacked hunger. But the way we've shifted to the ultra-processed diet, we've lost our way. And just the inability to analyze that, that's clearly what's going on. And just, just even acknowledge the fact that if we had a policy to limit ultra-processed foods, particularly for lower-income populations, you would wipe out type 2 diabetes and heart disease. And can you, you go down the list of the top 10 goes Americans. You literally, it's, it's not hyperbolic. You would actually, there's yeah. a way to wipe those out, yeah. many forms of cancer. So the siloing really helps. And what's happening, again, folks sitting in the office, it's, um, it's paying people to kind of obfuscate that silo things more silo things and, and to kind of finite conditions, you know, actually, I think deprive patients of understanding of the interconnectedness and awe for their body and how things are connected in, in a metabolic sense. I don't think most people even understand that, but that's what the goal is, is to, to, to segment things and confuse. Wow. Okay. So that's, I mean, do you have any other examples? So you've talked about normalization. Yeah. You've talked about the uh, standardization of care, the silo. Like I, I was actually, yeah. I don't know if, it, if it's already old news, but it isn't to us Canadians um, who are listening, but you know, the whole idea that like your role of uh, uh, when you were in the, in that business of using food stamps and calling junk food, actual food. I mean, that that's a bit like, what was it that they were saying for a while ago, like French fries and ketchup were or vegetables. Yeah. 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 Ketchup like, was a vegetable. Yeah. Is, is that sort of stuff still happening? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, you guys, the largest school district, as I said, is, is talking about how it's, it's, it's racist stigmatized food. They're, they're feeding yeah. okay. kids almost predominantly ultra processed crap, you know, going to the food stamps. thing. I think another important thing to mention is research. So there, in between two, 2020 and 2022, there, according to PubMed, have been about 50,000 uh, peer-reviewed, you know, academic papers concerning nutrition. There's billions of dollars spent on nutrition from Harvard to Tufts to Yale, I mean, to, you know, to all the elite institutions, a huge departments. It's a growth industry. And food companies spend 11 times more on that than the National Institute of Health. That's our nutritionists you know. and our dietitians that you're talking exactly, about. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, the foundational studies that really guide, I, I think, in the US and, and around the world, like nutrition. And the 50,000, right? So the 50,000 just in two years yeah. um, or so, I, I, that the goal of the billions of funding that food companies give to nutrition research is the fact that there's so much nutrition studies because it, it, the fact that there's a study that contradicts any other study is the point because it makes everything confusing. Right. So, 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 so you have 
also just massive conflicts of interest of obesity researchers and nutrition researchers where they are able to take direct payments from food companies and often do. So let me just ask this. Is this a, is this why it is that it, somebody who's saying, what should I eat? They go to the keto yes. community. They go to the plant-based community. They go, I don't know which is, which is, is it cholesterol? Will cholesterol kill me? Will it not? It, right. Like, is that what you're talking about? Because it's really confusing to the consumer. Well, yeah. I mean, the whole, the whole scare about, the whole scare about red meat and, and, uh, and certain kinds of fats and then the push on more carb heavy diet was, I mean, that, that has come out that there's been research into that. It was absolutely a corrupt, um, process, you know, knowing fraud on those studies, you know, they used, uh, the sugar research council directly funded studies at Harvard saying sugar didn't cause obesity, which was knowingly false, you yes. know, I, um, a, uh, a, in the nineties and, you know, a campaign to, to brand, uh, red meat and, 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 and certain yeah, that, so we know actually are actually anti-inflammatory is bad. So yeah, the, 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 it's a hundred percent. And what, what they do now is that there's still literally peer reviewed research coming out from elite academic institutions saying sugar doesn't cause obesity. There's, you know, basically studies questioning every which thing. And that leads whenever you go to a nutrition panel or nutrition yes. conference, you know, you have, you, you have on that stage, the, the, and as is said, I'm carrying reports from everywhere. The buzzword is let's not stigmatize any particular food. That's the buzzword. And, and it just kind of gives us, oh, well, you know, this study says that, this study says that. I mean, the head of the, you know, Tufts uh, Medical School just did this big, you know, study saying that Lucky Charms were uh, healthier yes. than beef. I actually talked, he called me because because we are trying to, you know, it's not personal. It's not personal. But I know from experience that when processed food companies pay millions of dollars for that study and make personal payments to him himself, the lead author, that they're trying to get something, what they're trying to get. And it actually said this in the press release for this study, again, that said honey nut shares are better than eggs, right? It actually said that the point of the study was to impact childhood marketing guidelines for childhood nutrition. So you take that study, you know, and it says that Lucky Charms are better than eggs, that goes to schools. It's like, oh, look, you can just get Lucky Charms. And we called that out. And Joe Rogan started talking about it. Fox News, other other outlets uh, kind of started getting outraged, I think, rightly. Yes. So, so the author called me and he spent 15 minutes basically saying that Lucky Charms are, are only magically delicious. They're, they're also healthy. <laughs> And that a highly processed grain that takes out the fiber, but then puts kind of Franken food vitamins in, that that's just as good as quinoa, that that's just as good as the whole grain. And that that's the kind of, you know, and he, he was earnest and I, I do think he has good motivations, but, you know, I think, I think when you accept millions of dollars personally and, um, and your entity that employs hundreds of people, uh, you know, is dependent on food, you know, that, that leads, you know, serious academics who, um, have devoted a lot of their life to, I think, doing good things to sit on panels at Davos and and say Lucky Charms are as, as good as and better than beef. Right. Until they have and that impacts our guidelines. Right. Yes. Until they have a crisis of faith like you did and turned around, but not enough of them are happening. It's not enough. Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest lie, I think most consequential lie we face, but definitely I think the most important lie in healthcare is that it's complicated. That's my opinion. And I know you, doctor, have been, you know, in in this fight a lot. And it's, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I, I, please check me on this. And I, I, I know the long tail is very complicated, but, but at the highest level, a lot of what we're facing uh, is tied to metabolic dysfunction. And I think there's a lot of avenues you can go into, you know, you talk about plant-based, talk about keto, talk about carnivore. But if you, if you, if you have the right articulation of any of these dietary philosophies, it gets to whole food. It gets to figuring out what micronutrients the body needs. And you can get there in a lot of ways, but any of those dietary philosophies that isn't basically stressing, they're essentially stressing the same thing or else they're charlatan, you know, but they're essentially agree. Even these yes. social media influencers that are fighting with each other, you know, I follow like carnivore MD and then a, a vegan influencer. They're actually saying 95% the same thing. They're saying Absolutely. we found that ourselves. Yeah. We found right. that ourselves. That's the common ground, but we end up fighting about the stupid exactly. thing are not related to the thing that we're actually talking about, which is real food. Well, yeah, yeah I think there's a couple dynamics there. So on the social media and the, on the influencer, people need something to put their hat on. They need something to differentiate themselves. Yeah. So like attacking vegans or attacking, you know, there's like a kind of a, it's an incentive, unfortunately, just given, 
you know, I think a lot of these influencers at podcasts, you know, are actually doing a lot of good things, but they need kind of an angle. So that does confuse people more. I think the much more important part of this is that there's so much research. Again, it's like, it's like, do we need research to say that Lucky Charms is Frankenfood that versus quinoa, like versus quinoa or versus a whole grain? It's like, the fact that we're even debating this is kind of part of the problem. It's like, oh, I don't know about this. There's a peer, there's a peer review. It's like, it's like, no, we've totally lost our way. Yeah. The basis of our diet is is um, you know, seed oils. That's an industrial byproduct created by Rockefeller is an industrial byproduct for his oil, basically. Um, and you call it industrial wastes. It's industrial waste. It yeah. is. It literally yeah. is. It, it was created. It was created as a kind of a byproduct of Rockefeller. In the early 1900s, it didn't exist before then. We're not evolutionarily made to eat that. It's the main source of U.S. fats right now. And then highly processed grains, which were also created after 1900, you know, uh-huh. stripping the fiber out, just total frankenfood, limited nutritional value, glucose bomb without the fiber, mm-hmm. um, and then added sugar, which like really wasn't a thing up until very recently. You know, we got uh, sugar out of like food, but so yeah, I, you know, our, to me, in a way, it is simple. It's like cut ultra processed foods. You know, if you cut those three ingredients, if you cut the, if we had a national effort to cut those three ingredients, seed oils, highly processed grains, added sugar, I mean, I can't even fathom what that would do to our budget and our human capital. And the fact that we have 50,000, you know, industry funded nutrition studies we're all arguing about, you know, really, I think is part of the, I would argue actually to cancel all nutrition research and make the entire U.S. nutrition policy, how can we price in the externalities of the devastation that those three ingredients are causing and yeah. work not, not to, you know, I don't want to ban sugar. I don't want to ban alcohol. I, I'm libertarian. Like let's, let's let drugs, but I don't think we should be subsidizing like marijuana for kids or alcohol for kids. Like we're, we're subsidizing it. We're not speaking clearly. The USDA still to this day for two-year-olds says it's okay for 10% of their diet to be added sugar, added sugar. It's crazy. That's to me, actually very analogous to saying and a recommendation for kids on alcohol or another type of drug. This is a, this is a very harmful, addictive drug. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So actually you're kind of getting into the next topic, which is solutions. How can we get out of this mess? So uh, can you give us some solutions or your ideas? Well, besides, let's stop all the debate and just get to the three dangers, added sugar, highly processed grains and highly processed oils or fats. Absolutely. Yeah, number one, I based on that. Okay. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. What else? Yeah. I think, I think, great. I think that there are actually, uh, I could start high level, like public policy and get Please. the person. Yeah. 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 And finally, um, what, what so, we can do individually for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think, um, there's a big, uh, transition in my thinking here. I used to be, you know, kind of getting into this a little bit uh, depressed. It is kind of depressing. I'm actually very optimistic. I, I, there are actually extremely simple things we can do that will profoundly change the trajectory of this. Number one is going back to those USDA recommendations on added sugar. I think a very important point is that people, particularly Americans, listen to medical professionals and medical guidelines. When the Surgeon General in the 1980s said smoking was very bad and issued a report, smoking rates plummeted since then. Mm. Um, Now, they were late. Now, we knew this in the 1960s, but tobacco was culturally very important. The cigarettes, it was uh, 7% of U.S. tax revenue is tobacco taxes, a very... You know, so 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 it took it took twenty years too late. But when that report came out, smoking rates did plummet. You look at the food pyramid in the U.S. in the nineteen nineties, disastrously saying that we should eat less kind of healthy fats and more carbs. Our diet in America in the next ten years, twenty percent of it shifted to carbs and sugar. Mm-hmm. So we actually listened to that. And then you know, even with COVID, you know, uh, telling Americans to take the vaccine. I, there's obviously been a lot of controversy around that, but I think it's like close to 90% plus of Americans, you know, had at least one year. It's like, it's like we do listen to medical professionals. And if one simple thing happened that could happen tomorrow, which is the USDA, which sets the nutritional guidelines for Americans and basically lobbies the rest of the world to adopt the similar things, yep. said, we do not recommend sugar. Not that we ban sugar, but that we don't recommend the fact that the USDA, the fact that the government says it is okay and frankly encouraged for a two-year-old to have added sugar mm-hmm. is crazy. That's a high, first of all, the 10%, that's a joke. This is a highly addictive drug. That's literally, it, it, the dopamine, you're just talking to Dr. Mark Hyman about this. Yes. If you do a brain imaging scan of the dopamine centers of the brain, it's actually indistinguishable 
from other drugs that are very illicit. So you don't you don't give recommendations for highly addictive drugs. You know, you say, okay, we'll legalize them as a society, but we're not like giving a recommendation. Uh, actually, as part of public policy, we shouldn't be nutritionally encouraging this at all. And and once you make the USDA guidelines zero, which it should absolutely be, and if you poll the American people, 90% would say, let's do that, mm-hmm. then that bleeds into where we're really committing atrocities. Then it would be more indefensible to have food stamp, a nutritional program that 50% of lower income Americans depend on, which 70% right now goes to highly processed foods, 10% go, alone goes to sugary drinks. Right. It, yeah. it would make it unimpeachable to not to have that at the USDA guidelines, which should be nonpartisan. It's supposed to be, but it's not. Said zero. It would go into childhood lunches. Childhood lunches would have to follow the USDA guidelines. Prisons, you know, hospitals. We actually like like that would make a huge difference. And 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 you know, it would basically be a guide for policy. I mean, I'm speaking to a number of lawmakers right now who are very upset about this and see their kids facing a lot of issues. They don't even know that they're not thinking about that. They don't they don't have nutrition backgrounds. The guidance should be zero. So that's that's number one. Yeah. Uh, just one other quick one is I, I think the Ozempic battle is um, is big. Uh, I'm glad you're bringing that up because it's yeah. so big in, in my community. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, again, I'm pretty libertarian. If uh, wealthy folks want- the main treatment for obesity right exactly, now. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I'm not even against the drug existing. I actually think it's going to be recalled as a disaster. It decreases bone mass. It increases thyroid cancer. It's actually just on the merits. I think it's actually a complete disaster and going to be recalled. I wouldn't recommend it for anyone, uh-huh. but I'm pretty libertarian. Like I have friends paying out of pocket, taking it, trying to lose weight. It's fine. Okay, great. The problem here, the big fight is the government funding, as we talked about earlier. Yeah. And here's our big issue. This is 80% of American adults that is the market. And then once it's approved for government funding, the government right now can't, in the U.S., can't re- legislate what doctor prescribes it. So there's a huge incentive for every doctor to prescribe it if the government's going to pay for it, and it's a lifetime drug. Yes. So it's like, this is great. Yes. The estimates conservatively, conservatively, is that this one drug Gosh. will double the amount that the U.S. government spends on drugs. It will be the equal to the entire amount of all drug spending that the U.S. government does. It will impact the budget trillions of dollars because the, in the U.S., you can't, uh, the government can't um, impact drug prices. So yeah. right and now- Just for people who don't know, it's like 2,000 bucks a month. Right. And that, and that like, right. And, and you would think that if you prescribe it to 40% of the U.S. population, that that yeah. price would come down. That's not what happens. No, ever. it didn't happen with the that, AIDS, AIDS crisis. No, 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 the U.S., you're not allowed to negotiate the prices. Uh-huh. So, so it's kind of this, it's like, oh, that can't possibly be trillions of dollars, a trillion dollars. The, the, the costs will come down. No, that is not, there's no evidence that that's ever happened. The price that it is right now is what the government will pay. That's a key thing for understanding. So let's take that. Let's take that $2,000. We are on the precipice yeah. of the U.S. government spending $2,000 per patient. Think yeah. about what you can do with that $2,000 yeah. when the issue is food and metabolic habit related metabolic dysfunction. Right. You could give every single obese child, right, a card to literally buy whatever they want, organic food. They could go buy caviar at Whole Foods and it would be cheaper. Right. Okay. The, you can also pay and healthier and healthier. Right. She could get that a thousand thousand dollars per person to buy caviar and other organic food at Whole Foods. And then another thousand dollars, twelve thousand dollars a year to exercise. And if their you know, activity tracker shows that they moved 150 minutes a week, they get $1,000 a month. That would be cheaper because it would also lower other metabolic conditions. So it's like if an alien came to Earth and said everyone's dealing with food-related metabolic dysfunction can be reversed almost immediately with food interventions and lifestyle interventions, we wouldn't say give them all Zimpic. So it's like... It's, it's a huge deal. I, and I really think it's just, we're going more and more to the path of being like that movie Wally, where we're all just rolling around in carts because, because of course, Ozempic isn't going to solve obesity long-term. No, you, you literally have to stay on it for, for life. And if you go off of it, you gain more weight back. It causes exactly. not only that, and, and also we don't even know, is there going to be, uh, become a point where a person develops a tolerance and so that they'll have to increase their meds or be on a triple Cock- of course, of course, because I mean, that's what's happened with all all med. Every medication I, has a lifespan, yeah. and then you need to double it or triple it. Yeah, only the experience in every other drug ever has would suggest that. Of course, yeah. the American Academy of Pediatrics 
is recommending this lifetime treatment for children when there's been zero long-term studies. Actually, the study they, they based that recommendation on, this sounds comical. It's like hard. It, it was like a three-month study. It was like it was like months, and this so what, is a lifetime. Yeah, so so you, your suggestion about this alternative, give the $1,000 or $2,000 in a different way, that's essentially your true med company it is and this gets the another um solution yeah. um but yeah just just kind of zeroing into that okay i think in the u.s there's a big apprehension of legislators to to to, to legislate health decisions between the doctor and the patient it was a huge huge kind of issue around obamacare it was like dr obama is going to legislate what to i just want to be very clear to legislators i'm actually meeting with a couple later this week they should be there should be a lot that no government money goes to as epic before it goes to food. I mean, period. We should have a medical, the medical systems have been co-opted and are telling us that obesity is an ozempic deficiency. And they're literally saying that. <laughs> I can't believe it. Obesity That's is what they're arguing. good. Oh my God. I so we should, you know, if the medical system is going to be completely co-opted yes. and say obesity is a ozempic, ozempic deficiency, <laughs> then I think legislators who are overseeing the crippling of the American budget and the decimation of American human capital need yes. to actually step up a little bit there and actually uh, do what the medical community has not done. Um, uh, complete another moral cowardice. Okay. So very, okay. I hope the message, because I'm very despondent as I kind of thought about this in years past. I am very optimistic now. The fact that we've been having this conversation, uh, you know, there's a lot of books, a lot of podcasts, a lot of people waking up, a lot yeah. of lawmakers from both sides, you know, kind of amped up about this. Okay. So we got to answer the fundamental question, how do we shift the incentives of healthcare to not wait for someone to get sick and then profit pharma and the healthcare system, you know, once you get sick to manage the condition and not train people how to have better metabolic food habits, how do we incentivize people to be healthy? And if you just think about it from the highest level, the $4 trillion that we spend on healthcare, that we could blue sky ask, how do we keep people healthy, which inevitably goes to improving our food system. You know, we could have a national effort on regenerative agriculture and better food, you know, reducing monocropping, you know, actually pricing any externality of added sugar, all that stuff. Okay. So a partner and I asked, you know, what, what can we do right now? Yeah. And in the United States, there's these tax advantage accounts called FSA, HSA accounts. So let me, let me explain what these are. So in the U.S., and pharma basically lobbied for this as part of the Affordable Care Act and a little bit before that for the FSA. We don't need to get into the nitty gritty. They said, okay, we have health insurance, but let's create these accounts where Americans can actually take money pre-tax from mm -hmm. their paycheck into a savings account and then use that money on qualified medical purchases, which basically you know, the way the law was written and thought of is, is drugs. So it's like, you, so most Americans, they can elect to have $7,200 per family. Pre so that's pre-income tax. That's pre all. So that's like 30, 40% depending on your tax rate. So it's a pretty substantial savings. Yeah. But usually that's for, if you have a chronic condition, if you need to buy your insulin, you can buy a tax free. Of course, the law, even though every law in the United States on healthcare is written by pharma, it, it, it can't say you can only buy, you know, Pfizer pills or injections. It right. says a qualified medical expense that a doctor says is appropriate. So a doctor says right. insulin, you can buy insulin. What we've found is that a doctor can also write a letter of medical necessity, a recommendation for food. Take for any food. chronic condition from obesity to diabetes to heart disease to depression to anything. You know, 150 minutes of exercise per week for three months straight clinically has been shown to reduce depression more than an SSRI. Pay for that. You could use the money to pay for that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what we're doing. So we're yeah. creating doctor's notes in a very seamless way online uh, and then and then connecting those patients with brands, with supplements, with exercise, with food. We're working with a number of food retailers yeah. to yeah. buy whole food, to buy exercise and as it's a not medical. Just, and it's not just going to be onshore, which is just basically just fat and sugar. This is the stuff that we give people for food who basically, right. yeah, terrible. it's going to yeah. be, no, real no. Food. we will have yeah. no process, no, no, nothing obviously with sugar, seed oils or, um, exactly. or processed grains, yeah. no, but if you put a keto for PCOS, which many women are struggling with right now, yeah. um, the most impactful intervention, many studies show this is a super low sugar keto, uh, diet, um, has shown extraordinary effects. 
for depression, obviously for heart disease and diabetes reversal yeah. and prevention. So we just basically substantiate in the note, our physicians, things that should be pretty obvious to us, but aren't to the system, which then unlock medical spending on food yeah. and exercise. So truemed.com. Yeah. Kelly, we're running out of time and I want to ask one more question about, about um, uh, two more. What about another intervention of, can we sue the food companies? Do you see that eventually happening like we've done with the uh, uh, the narcotic, the uh, Purdue company? The, the Purdue and the cigarettes, yeah. 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 yeah, no, I think the only thing that's, you know, is, different, I'm oh, sorry. I'm just, is that something that we can do eventually in the future? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's been very enlightening being on this uh, rampage in the past couple of months, talking about these issues. A number of prominent lawyers have, have reached out and just, there, there's efforts underway. I've been huh. trying to connect them to researchers and other folks as best I can. Bill Lackman, one of the richest people in the country, a hedge fund manager, uh, retweeted what I wrote about Coke and said it's time for a class action. He wanted oh, suggested really? he wanted to fund it. Uh, lawyers are working on this. So yeah, the only thing that is different, frankly, be- between sugar and, and opioids or tobacco is that what sugar is doing is worse. It's, it's far worse. You know, I mapped out on Twitter the you could tie the deaths to um, of each drug. Sugar is an order of magnitude worse than any other drug, including opioids. Interestingly, all the drugs that kill the most people are at the top of the list, and the top of the list are legal. Uh It's like sugar, opioids, methamphetamines, which we prescribe to 15% of U.S. high schoolers, you know, on down. And then it's a whole nother conversation, but you have, you know, MDMA and and psilocybin and stuff that, you know, know. basically killed nobody that's highly stigmatized. That's another conversation. But yeah, uh, sugar is causing and wreaking damage. And then these cases, what they hung their hat on is the knowing weaponization, the knowing misleading of, yes. um, of of lawmakers and other authorities. That's absolutely, I saw that. We talked about that. It's obviously clear. There's systematic rigging of academic research and uh, civil rights organizations. That's happening with the with the tobacco, or, excuse me, with the sugar companies. So, so yes, I think that's a free market, totally legitimate way because what we don't have right now is the right externalities right now a coke at a store is Uh cheaper than water Uh because the coke contains ingredients through lobbying and corruption that are subsidized Uh we actually have coke cheaper we need to all i'm asking is that we're clear about the impact of added sugar and not be subsidizing it and recommending it for kids which we do now and potentially price in the externalities of this dangerous substance as we do with alcohol, tobacco, other things that are taxed. Okay. Wow. Oh my God. Now, now, now another question, uh, final question before we close up. Um, have you had any pushback from your whistleblowing status? I mean, you've come out from being a, an insider and you're speaking quite eloquently about uh, some of the horrors that are being perpetrated and also obviously some suggestions, which they don't like. Have you suffered any consequences or do you in- anticipate that? You're pretty brave. No, I, Honestly, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. I think my message so far, we'll see what happens. If I disappear, please alert uh, <laughs> the authorities. But um, I, my message so far, and it was I'm a little bit nerve Your voice is too strong. Uh, okay, thank you. Important. I, I would say this, and again, maybe I'll regret this or, or, or second guess this, depending on what happens in the future. But um, I was definitely nervous speaking out. My framework is that, again, going back to business school, I mean, there's a lot of great, smart people in this country and in, uh, in many countries that are like kind of for various reasons, just go on the kind of elite path of working for these pharma companies, working for, I think everyone knows that something's wrong and there's a real fear to speak out. I think we're entering, yeah. I think societal change is happening faster than it ever has. I think there's a lot of messy things happening, but we're debating healthcare. We're debating race relations. We're debating gender issues. We're debating transit. Like we're actually, we're actually as a society, like debating it's messy, but we're debating and like societal change is happening like at a rapid pace. And, you know, maybe actually some of that long-term is, is good, even though it's very messy at the time. I think that's happening in every institution. You know, education system is just totally not letting us down healthcare. But I think it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to speak out. So my message would be, there's been very limited pushback. I think, honestly, I've talked to people at these organizations that I used to work with very high up who are kind of like, gosh, we kind of want things to change. Like, like, oh, you know, wow. I, within the door. Right. And, and I think I'm not even for like the complete necessarily even elimination of Coke. I mean, 
Coke is playing within the roadmap that they helped set in his set. I mean, like, you know, it's a little bit of just nudging and, and, you know, there's, there's public policy, there's societal, but, but, you know, you just kind of got to talk out and push. And that, that would be my message. I, I think I have been like happier and calmer than I've been in a long time on this. Cause it feels good to talk out about this. Cause I feel very passionate about it. You have yeah. a new son. I feel so just like, I just, this would be my answer. Just, I think it's a little bit less scary once you do it. And I know there's a lot of people and a lot of organizations. My sister was terrified leaving medicine after 13 years of training. She didn't know what she was going to do. Now she started a company. She's speaking. It's like, it's like there's a, she's inspired me a lot. It's like, but most doctors, it feels like there's too much to lose, to leave. I've met so many doctors who've left the traditional system. I've, I've yet to meet one who's miserable. Like, like I, I think there's so much on the other side, you know, and when I decided to kind of not play the game and you know, going up the traditional system too, it, it led to better happiness. So that's my perspective. And I don't know if that, I hope that resonates with maybe some people that are in the system. It's, it's not, it's very liberating to speak out. Well, it sounds liberating because I can attest to the other side, which is the people that don't speak out are miserable. Like they, and so, yeah, I so think it's, yeah. there is another side and it's actually not so bad. Oh, this is great. That's a great point. That's a great yes. point. A lot, <laughs> a lot of people are very depressed who are in the, that's a really good point. I, I really, yeah. Well, thank you. So what is next for you, Callie? Yeah. So, so I, I, you know, I'm very passionate about these issues, obviously. And, and over the past couple of years has, has been selling, sold my previous company, which was in the e-commerce space, you know, inspired by my sister, by my mom's experience, um, the metabolic condition passing away. You know, mm-hmm. I asked, how do I kind of structure and devote my life to this issue, which I define as changing the incentives of healthcare to not be waiting and profiting off people getting sick, but incentivizing people to be healthy. So I started TrueMed.com um, with a great partner, uh, Justin Mares, who previously started Kettle and Fire Bone Broth and Perfect Keto, two great uh, healthy food companies, leading bone broth brand and a keto brand. Um, and we really bonded over this issue of incentivizing healthy behaviors. And we found this, you know, we think it's a model of, of health policy, what we're doing, which is enabling these tax advantage accounts to be spent on food, not drugs, basically, um, which, which not only prevent disease, Food is all often put in this preventative box. It actually is the best reversal for most diseases. If you actually have Alzheimer's or have diabetes or have some some cardiovascular issues, it's actually a better reversal than a, than a drug. So we, we, you know, that's what we're doing through the company. What, what Justin and I are trying to do is um, is build a community, you know, that cares about this, and, and our customers who are early customers who are using it are, are, are see using they're basically medical spending on food as as an act of rebellion. And and that's really led to us talking out about this. And we're engaging with legislatures, the press, because we want to move whatever we can do to things forward. And also hopefully be involved with public policy conversations as much as we can to to educate, because I think there is a desire to, to change this. And then the way I got my head around this over the past couple of years, I've been helping my sister, Dr. Casey Means, on a, on a book um, yes, on metabolic health. Yeah, and it really, uh, yeah, that's going to be hopefully next year. And um, it's a long process. Uh, I don't want to give too much away and we'll have more to say on that. But but I will, I will say, I, I think the biggest trend that's low understood is, as you hit on, doctor, is I, I think it's it's arguing that we're going to have a shift. We're going to have a shift from the 42 specialties, the siloed view of health to a metabolic view of health. And we have to correct ourselves in not seeing the body as siloed. And uh, that's kind of what we're arguing uh, through through Casey's experience. We're really excited about that and hope, hope that is impactful. Well, I'll tell you, if your book is any, if this is a teaser for that book, I'm, I'm ready to buy it. I'm ready. To get it. <laughs> okay. We'll, All right. we'll have to have you and your sister back, but we do have oh, one signature to. question <laughs> before we let you go. And that would be if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food and or the food industry, what would it be? <laughs> oh man, I'm trying to just try to think about this with my, my new son. Right. Trust your body, not what institutions are telling you. Uh, humans are the uh, humans and animals we've domesticated and feed are the only animals that have systematic rates of metabolic dysfunction and obesity. You know, there's not, there's not uh epidemics of obesity among uh, giraffes or lions in the wild. So there, you were born with this innate, uh, I think understanding of what's right for us, you know, children are, 
my, my young son is has a predisposition to natural food and sunlight and movement. I mean, they kids can't stop moving. Yeah. And, you know, we, we immediately addict them to processed food and, and sit them in a desk and uh, in a windowless room for most of the day. So, um, so I think it's just independent thinking and, and trusting your innate um, cellular biology that's embedded in us to know what's good for us and kind of not trust the system, frankly. Because I, I, I did, you know, like like most people my generation have had, I think I probably can trace a lot of, you know, health issues and, and various mental issues, even to, you know, processed food, 90s, that food pyramid diet. I think a lot of problems can can, can tie to that, if, you, if you're really honest. That's awesome. Michael Thank Lyons you so much yeah. for being Thank here, you. Callie. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That was a great Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.